of the last few years of the ski trip. We couldn't go on one this year, but we might as well have just kind of soaked up some of the memories uh, from years past. But I did stick to tradition. That has nothing to do with my talk. I just wanted to show it. So um, what we're going to talk about tonight, uh, I'm pretty excited to dive into. Um, but first, before we get into our scripture passage this morning, has anyone, if I say... Um, if I describe something as like a, a moment where you just, like a what are you doing, like what am I doing here kind of moment. Or is something come to your mind of like the scenario that you're in where you're just thinking to yourself like what am I doing there, like how did I get here. Uh, an, an example for me, um, in, in college I took a class uh, that called, and I, one of my roommates, his name is Brian Hoysa, he told me this was going to be an easy class, don't worry, you should take it with me. I said, okay. I'll, I'm with you, Hoysa. Like, I'll take this class. I said, what's it called? He said, Classical Athens. I was like, you're sure this is going to be an easy class? He's like, I promise you, Classical Athens, easy class. There was multiple times during that semester where we, Hoysa and I walked into class, and he, the professor handed us a test, and we were like, there's a test today? And he's like, yeah. And needless to say, I didn't do very well in that class. And so... Um, Hoysa was taking it, which I didn't find out until later, pass-fail, which means all he needed was a 60.0 or higher, and he just got a P on his transcript, a pass. That's all he needed. I took it, regular old A, B, C, D, alphabet grades. I also barely got a 60.0 in that class and made it through. And so then Hoysa graduates, and I'm looking at my, uh, my schedule. I've got a D on my transcript, and I'm just thinking to myself, like, what am I doing here? Like, how... Am I going to graduate on time if I keep picking up all these low, low grades of D's, F's? And so I texted him. I was like, okay, that was bad advice. Do you have good advice this time for as I make my schedule? And he responded to me uh, and he said this. I actually have a screenshot from that. He said, I hear that. The when in fear, remember, I got four D's and made it out alive. And I, as you can see, 2013 me responded with, that's the best college advice I've ever gotten right there. And, and in that moment, this, all I needed to hear was like someone else had, had, had done worse than I did and I, and I could do it. I could finish school. I could, I didn't, 1D wasn't going to sink me. Uh, it's not great, but um, as, as Hoyser liked to say, C's get degrees, but if you have an A on there, you can get a couple D's. And so I was in that, in that moment, I was like, what am I doing here? What is going on? And as I was talking about what I was going to get into tonight, I was talking with Max, and Max is like, oh, you mean like moments where, like a couple weeks ago, when I was sitting out here watching the game, and I was thinking to myself, what am I doing here? Brady's about to throw up from all the things that he, you guys put in his blender. And I was like, yes, exactly, Max, just like that. Like, what am I doing here moment? I'm really sad I missed this. I heard it was a good time, except for when Brady was throwing up afterwards. Heard that wasn't a good time. Sorry, sorry that happened to you, Brady, but I appreciate that you handled it, you know, um, as best you could, I guess. Uh, anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is I think we've all been in situations where we thought to ourselves at one point or another, like, what am I doing here? And uh, we're going to look at a passage today in the Old Testament. It's in First Kings. Uh, and there's a character uh, named Elijah, and he gets to a point, uh, not yet, jumping ahead of me there, um, Elijah, something like that happened with Elijah. But, um, and Elijah gets to a point where 
he's thinking to himself, what am I doing here? And he's asked the question even explicitly, what are you doing here? Uh, and, and before we get to that, Elijah, it's one of those stories in the Old Testament. It takes up like chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters. And so I just want to give you like a quick summation of where we're at when we're going to join the story. Just so you have the context. But I'm not going to stand here and read three chapters from 1 Kings to you. So... Elijah's story set up goes like this. There's a couple of characters you need to know. First character you need to know is this lady named Jezebel. Has anyone heard the name Jezebel before? Yep, a couple of rings. Even if you don't know what she's from, you've heard the name probably. And Jezebel was a prophetess of another, another god, not, not our god, but the god Baal. And um, her kind of thing was that she would kill prophets of God... ...in the name of Baal, who uh, was not, is a false god that she was trying to turn people to. It was basically like a convert, follow Baal, or I'm going to kill you. She was kind of that person. But she was not in charge. She was the high, high prophetess of Baal, but she was not in charge. There was another character we need to know. His name was Ahab, and he was the king in the land at that time. And Ahab had been a follower of God, but he switched to Baal... ...probably because he didn't want to be killed by Jezebel... And he was not a good king. He was a bad king. He was an evil king. And God actually had caused drought and famine in the land. And so when we pick up on Elijah's story, Elijah is a prophet for God. There's, the, there's Ahab and Jezebel doing all this stuff for, for Baal in the name of Baal, killing people in the name of Baal, killing followers of God in the name of Baal. And Elijah gets to a point where he feels like, he looks around, he says, I think I'm the last prophet ...of God left. I'm the last person following God here. And so when you're the last person, you're backed into a corner. There's nothing else to do but fight back. And so he challenges Jezebel and Ahab and any priest of Baal they could find. And they ended up bringing over 800 priests to this challenge. So there's 800 plus people on one side for Baal. And then there's Elijah on this side for God. And he sets a challenge. And the challenge that they set... ...to find out who is the one true God once and for all. Like, let's settle this. You've killing all these people. Let's just, let's just get this over with. And I'll prove to you that my God is the true God. And the challenge they set is that they each will sacrifice something to their gods. A bull. And they'll set it up. And normally in a sacrifice, you would, you would burn the sacrifice as an offering to God. But in this challenge, God would light the, the fire... ...for the sacrifice himself or Baal would light the sacrifice himself. And so Baal goes first and 850 priests and Jezebel and Ahab, they're praying, they're dancing, they're doing weird stuff. They're trying to get Baal to light the fire and they try for hours and hours and hours and the fire does not light. And then Elijah goes and Elijah is a savage is the first thing you need to know about Elijah. Elijah says, I, it's too easy. Dump water all over the wood and all over the offering... So that it's drenched, it's soaked, it, a fire couldn't start. I couldn't possibly have rigged this. And he says, you know what, dump more water on it. And he does it another time. And the, water, the wood, the offering is soaked. And then he calls on the name of the Lord and God lights the offering on fire. Elijah wins the challenge. He proves to all who are watching that Baal could not stand in comparison to God, the one true God who could light the, the soaking wet wood, the water all over the place. But yet it, it is... ...in a big fire. Now the fire. I'm talking about fire, Siege. Come on. Fire. Yeah, woo! Fire! Yeah, there it is. And, um, and uh, he wins the challenge. But what do we know about Jezebel... ...from what the brief amount I just told you? Does she seem like the kind of person who's going to be like... ...you did it, good job, I'll head home? 
No, she's not. And so Jezebel basically is like, oh, you won. Cool. Um, get him. Let's kill him. And so Elijah, having just seen this crazy uh, feat of God right in front of all these witnesses and people, gets scared because all of them just got told to kill him. So he goes on the run and he is on the run. And that is where we pick up where, uh, with Elijah's story in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And before we read the first little bit of that 1 Kings 19, um, we've been looking this since the start of the new year at fixing our eyes on Jesus. And we've been looking at Jesus in everyday life. We've looked at a couple different times of how, how we might encounter Jesus and money and Jesus and the poor. And on Sundays they've been talking about Jesus and family. And tonight what I wanted to look at is kind of like on a broader level, what does it mean to encounter Jesus in our everyday lives? Not necessarily the specific things like when we're, encounter, when we're dealing with money, when we're dealing with the poor, when we're dealing with our family. But those in-between moments, the parts that make up the day that we don't necessarily even remember or actively are thinking about. There's nothing of consequence going on, but they're still a part of our everyday life, those in-between moments. Because Elijah just had a lot of things happen to him, and I just told you that. But in this next section, he goes on the run, and there's a lot of things that happen, but God isn't in those big moments. He's in the in-between. And I think that that's something in our everyday lives we don't do a very good job at looking for. And so in the story of Elijah, there are three pauses, three moments that give an example of how, how to encounter God. Not in big moments, not in mountaintop experiences, but in the pauses of everyday life. And so now the scripture will come up. First Kings 19, we'll read the first little section and see about that first pause. So verse, uh, chapter 19, verses 3 through 8 says... Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So now he's by himself. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came out and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his Head, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food. Forty days, forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And so just, I, I found, I, thought, I just thought this was interesting. This is what a broom tree looks like. This is what he was sleeping under. Not like the... And initially when I read this, I don't know why, but in my mind I was thinking that big tree that Rafiki's in in The Lion King. I don't know, I don't know anything about broom trees, but that's what, what I was picturing in my mind. And then I looked it up and it's just this like bush basically. So he's under this bush. He's by himself. He's on the run. He knows people are coming to kill him if they find him. And he just crawls up under this broom tree. And in this moment, he encounters God. And what does God tell him to do? God tells him to rest. Which I think is interesting because normally when we think about encountering God, it's a call to action. It is like leading of, of, to victory against an enemy. It is a big and powerful moment for us. It is a, a person we meet on a missions trip. It is a moment we have on a ski trip. It is, it is a mountaintop experience. And yet here God encounters him and, and the angel speaks with the word of God. And it says, rest, eat, sleep. Elijah is rushing around, he's frantic, his fear is propelling him forward, he cannot feel, he does not feel like he can go back. And I think 
That, a lot of that is us, not necessarily being chased by 800 prophets of, of a false god. But we're constantly moving. We're constantly going from next to next. We fear a lot of stuff that just has our blinders on moving forward. We fear failure. We fear not being good enough. We fear um, not living up to the expectations that are set before us. We fear so much that is just pushing us to constantly be moving and being better and trying to do more and forward and forward and forward and never looking back and never pausing and never resting. And sometimes Elijah just had encountered God in a big way in a standoff with the false prophets. He had encountered God in a huge way and yet God tells him here, he encounters him and tells him to rest, to eat, to sleep, to pause. And by doing that, You're allowing yourself not to get distracted by the more, 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 what's next, what's next, what's next, fear-based motion in our lives. But we're letting God kind of just fill us, give us strength. Recuperation, rest, Sabbath, this is, these are not bad things, but our culture tells us that that you can't be doing that. You got to be 24-7, no days off, like move, move, move. Um, But God here is telling Elijah in the midst of all this chaos and struggle in his life that he needs to rest. And so if you, if now you can tell your parents if you're ever like feeling overwhelmed or whatever, like, Mom, First Kings 19, God told Elijah to rest. I need to take a nap. Okay, you can, you can use that. Tell them, tell them I told you. It's fine. Uh, so that first pause in our lives uh, where we can encounter God, it's not a big thing. It's a small, quiet moment, is rest. Second pause is waiting, to wait. Next couple of verses uh, in First Kings 19. Verse 9, yep, there he came to a cave. So he's reached Mount Horeb after 40 days journey, right? And he lodged in the cave and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And God tells Elijah after he says that, he answers his question, he tells him, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And you see, God tells Elijah here to go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. But Elijah doesn't move immediately. Right, he waits till he can sense God's presence, till he feels God out on the outside the cave. And you think, from what we know of God, the big stories that we know about God in, in the Old Testament, especially, and all the miracles and big things Jesus does, we're expecting God to show up in something like a great strong wind, like an earthquake, like a big fire outside. But it's not any of those things. God, the Lord, is in the whisper. And one of the things, uh, if you're looking in your Bible, obviously you can't see a footnote up on the screen that I've copied and pasted up onto the slide. But in the footnote, it would tell you that the translation of low whisper could have also been um, something else. Uh, Oh, wait, sorry, I jumped ahead. That's my bad. Um, He's waiting in the cave. I jumped to the third point, sorry. First, we got to talk about waiting. And, And God speaks to him again, and he experiences all these things. So... It's not that even though the Lord isn't in the earthquake, in the fire, in the wind, Elijah still has to stand there in the mouth of the cave and experience those things, right? All of those big, monumental, uh, 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 even great 
use for an analogy of your, in your own personal life, right? Like that earthquake of, of emotion I was experiencing, the great wind, the fire. God was not in them specifically in this moment, but Elijah still had to experience them. He was still waiting for God. He did not give up. And I think so often we're so quick to give up on God's call to wait. We're so quick to bail on our faith because it's not happening at the pace that we want in the exact way that we want. We experience things and it immediately they're not resolved. And all we might need to encounter Jesus is just to wait a little bit longer. Wait for the fire to die down. Wait for the earthquake to pass and God will be there just around the corner. Uh, talking about Jesus in the between times, we have to wait for him to reveal himself, right? We always talk about the analogy of a spiritual mountaintop, a spiritual high. But if you're just, if you're always up on the mountaintop, right, you're not going up and experiencing anything. You're just living a flat line. So naturally in life, there are highs and there are lows. And in these in-between times where nothing big is happening positively and nothing big is happening negatively, that, that's just kind of waiting for you. And, and if we're just waiting passively, we're waiting just like, okay, well, at some point I just came off a mountain, so I'm going to go through some bad stuff, but then I'll go back up on a mountain. So I don't need God until I start getting to the bottom of that valley, or I don't need God until I start climbing that mountain again. If we're not actively looking for him in that waiting time, we're missing out on so much of our lives, right? Like the mountaintop experience is, is like a ski trip for a couple days or a really low, deep valley, something terrible happens to you, is like a few days in actual event, and then we're like dealing with that fallout. We're dealing with or trying to hold on to the, the mountaintop experience for an extended period of time as long as we can. But it's this in-between time that the, the passive waiting is not what we need. God tells us we need to be actively looking for him in that waiting time. We need to rest, we need to wait, and the third pause in the Elijah story is where God comes in. It's not in the fire. Um, and after the, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, God's voice saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And uh, I started talking, I jumped the gun on this earlier, but the low whisper can also be translated as a thin silence, like a silence that's like, so dead it's loud. Have you ever experienced that? Where it's been it's so quiet, it's almost deafening? No, I feel like we don't hit that a lot in our culture. We seek to fill in the, the, the dead time. We seek to fill in the silence, whether it's by always having the TV on or always having music on or always FaceTiming somebody whenever we feel like we can't just sit here and do nothing anymore. But imagine that. When we think of encountering Jesus, we expect this big Thing. Maybe we even prefer this big event to happen. Some mountaintop experience, some earthquake level Jesus moment. But Elijah had one in the challenge. He, ha he ha could have had them right before God came in that silence. God speaks to him in three quiet pauses. The angel speaks with God's voice when he tells him to rest during that resting time. God meets him right at the beginning of the cave when he's telling him to wait. That's when God's speaking to him, not not during the earthquake, not during the fire, but God is speaking again the next time in the silence, in the pause. He tells him to rest, tells him to wait, and then he encounters him in a thin silence. 
And in that cave, God asks Elijah two questions, right? He asks him the same question twice, at the beginning and at the end of that time in the cave. And he asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And this is a question as we land the plane here tonight that I want to ask us as well two times, just like Elijah was asked two times. So the first time God asks him, what are you doing here? And we read Elijah's response and he tells him, God, I, I, I serve you. I'm the only one left. Like, I'm just here. Please help me. And God meets him out beside the cave. He stands before the Lord, First Kings tells us. And, and he gets intentional time with God. And so the question I would ask us here, the first, what are you doing here? Is what are you doing here right now? Uh, at church, at SM night, in small groups, like, we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing here? Are we seeking to encounter God, to stand before the Lord? Get, seek intentional time with Jesus. Is this time where we gather, or is this time that we gather all about seeing if they're going to make Brady eat something gross in a blender this week? Um, are we here to seek out and encounter Jesus? What are we doing right now? And God asked him at the end, he asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah, a second time? And Elijah responds pretty much exactly the same way, but God's response is different. This time God doesn't tell him to pause, he doesn't call him to rest, he doesn't tell him to wait, he doesn't tell him anything in a silent. He speaks and he tells him to go back the way he came. He sends him back out into the world. Remember, we started this whole thing with Elijah on the run, trying to get away from where he had just been. But God sends him back the way he came, back to where he was. So for us, the what are we doing here? What are we doing when we leave, when we're not here, the rest of the time, not this one moment where we're intentionally seeking out Jesus, but the rest of our weeks, the rest of our time? Are we building habits uh, where we seek God in the rhythms of our lives? Are we building the habits of pausing, of encountering God in not, the mountain, not just mountaintops or valleys, but in the in-between, in everyday life? The title of this series was Encountering Jesus in Everyday Life, and we talked about specific events, but what are we doing the rest of the time? When we're pursuing and encountering Jesus in everyday life, it requires us to rest, to wait, to listen to the silence. More importantly, it requires us to answer the same question that was asked of Elijah. What are we doing here? So we're going to talk about that tonight in small groups. Uh, I'll pray for us and then uh, Alana will hand out rosters and we can get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to learn more about you, about your son Jesus from your word. God, there are so, there's so much in the book that, that we don't know that is just right there. If we could just open our eyes and see how you're speaking to us through your word, how much better every day of our lives could be with more of you in it. God, I ask you to be with each and every person in here in all the conversation in the small groups tonight and not just let seeking and encountering and pursuing you to be a once a week thing at seven o'clock on Thursdays, but to be in every portion of our lives to be a built-in habit, a built-in rhythm of our everyday lives. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your son and all God's people said, amen.